Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast and the Rorima Expedition special features. You know, Rorima is where Arthur Conan Doyle's famous book, The Lost Worlds, is set. And you can totally imagine a dinosaur appearing. A remote location expedition is an exceptionally complex thing to organise and run. The prow is, like, the feature of the wall. Just like Only 3% of the Earth's surface is covered in rainforest. Uh, it's one of those trips that doesn't doesn't kind of seem real. I've never done a big wall before and I've always kind of wanted to, but it's like finding a decent partner or team. In conversation, I only catch about half the words. <laughs> I'm not sure if I understand the Guyanese or the British better. <laughs> I've just been worrying about the snakes and the anacondas and the river crossings. And I'm kind of looking forward to it being hard in a way, just like a bit of an endurance test and see how I do. There are so few areas in the world like this forest that we're going into. Like my whole life, in a way, has been moving towards being able to do expeditions such as these. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast, and the fourth episode in our special series on the Rorima expedition with Leo Holding. I'm sitting down with Leo now to talk about our journey from Wailang to where we are now in base camp and the wall above. Can you start by telling me where you are and what you can see and your surroundings? Right now we're sat in the gear tent, which is one of the parachutes we dropped out of the sky truck, tensioned over a mound that was very vegetated. We leveled at the top of it and it's pretty good gear area. The parachute's keeping stuff dry. There's not much stuff here because we've had a remarkable few days and moved more than half a ton of equipment up 2,000 feet to our advanced base camp. So it's looking pretty spartan down here now. Lots of wet Gore-Tex jackets hanging out, caked in mud, some very dirty harnesses. And we're looking over towards the mess tent camp area, which is a bit more square and angular. There's a table and a bench, and it's served our purposes well. It's muddy as heck everywhere. And beyond that, we've got the hammock camp, which was hard fought, but there are six hammocks dangling in not that sweet of spots. That means they're not like flat and nice underneath it. We had to hack it out of a steep jungle side about 15 minutes beyond the jungle, uh, beyond the hammock camp on pretty tricky terrain. You go up a hill to the top of a, a little pointy hill, which has previously been chainsawed. And uh, so there is a helicopter landing zone there, a very small one, and also an incredible viewpoint. They probably took down three or four trees. And that gives you an immense view of this Tapiri land and up towards the prow, if it clears. But unfortunately, for us, the day that we arrived in base camp, well, the next day, the first day in base camp, the weather changed from the perfect stable high that we'd had for the whole approach. And we here was like that for two weeks before we arrived. It broke and it pretty much has rained ever since. I think that was five days ago now. With varying degrees of intensity, yesterday we experienced some proper tropical rain for the first time, like raindrops the size of 20 pence pieces hammering down you can't look up and it's really that was up near the base of the wall and it's really exposed up there so and it's just full quagmire stream really i can't remember dealing with mud like this for a long time it's a little bit frustrating because it does sort of give the telltale signs of 
the fact that there was a three-week dry spell. The dry season here is pretty short. It's usually the month of November, but it can come on go a couple of weeks early or late. And I'm dreading that it may have come early this season and that we're now going to experience rain for the rest of the expedition. But it doesn't really affect anything one way because right now it doesn't really matter. The forest's so wet here anyway, even if it hadn't rained for a week, I think we would have still got covered in slime and mud. It is obviously of a different intensity when it's raining. But in a way, it's better than boiling our socks off on this hill. So, yeah, we just have to carry on and ignore the rain, basically. It's hard getting going in the morning, particularly getting out your hammock and putting your muddy boots on. But at this stage, moving all the kit up to the base of the wall, it doesn't really matter. In a way, it could work to our advantage because if there's any fresh you know, runoff streams up there, we could fill up a couple of hundred of liters of water, which is you know a couple of hundred kilos, right at the base of the wall, um, instead of having to walk it from nearly an hour and a half away, which is huge. So yeah, and then pray that the sun comes out when we start getting stuck into that mighty wall up there. So that's where we are right now, and that's what's going to happen shortly. Sweet. And can you talk us through, I know it was a while ago, but the journey from Wailang to where we are now? So Wailang was the last outpost of humanity that we passed three days after Philippi. There is a helicopter landing pad there and an amazing waterfall. It seemed like a very peaceful, nice place. From there, we walked across a large plateau for two days um, in quite nice forest. Flat is good. <laughs> uh, and the obstacle course that we face for the whole journey in is just something else that's really inspired me to make some stuff for the kids at home. You know, when you balance on logs through the woods, um, I do it with my kids all the time, but it's one of those things you stop doing as you get older. And we just did that for kilometers and kilometers of balancing across logs. Some of them high consequence, lots of them just above bogs. And then these guys build these brilliant bridges and um, they make it so it's consistently not that hard and um, so they'll just put one stick stuck in the mud that wobbles around but it just gives you that bit of balance you need or on the more exposed ones they'll build a proper handrail some of the sticks are like levers that you throw to the guy behind you just to give you that little bit extra and they're really good at knowing the doing the absolute minimum to make it easy and it's really quite fun our loads were manageable so you're not wasn't too ball breaking, beautiful campsites by rivers, able to wash with all your clothes on, staying clean. It was a really gentle introduction, which is great because there's some pretty inexperienced people on the team and it's much nicer getting used to hammock life and camp life. Everything's a hassle, right? Just making coffee in the morning requires getting the water and filtering water and firing up dangerous liquid fuel stoves, uh, nothing simple. And so it was nice to get used to all that in flat terrain in nice weather and then we had a real high point when we the first hill you start feeling it we went over a pass more technical training then we came down to a big river where we met the four guys Troy and the boys who'd been in here opening the trail and who had spotted the airdrop and um, so it was great news as soon as we came to this beautiful little beach they were there happy to see us because they'd run out of food they were all buzzing and they told us exactly what we wanted to hear, which was that they found, or they saw us drop the stuff. They were up on that heli landing zone above this camp, which gives you a, a spectacular view of that whole area and the landslide. And they saw the whole lot. They were ready. We came on time, on date. And they saw all four loads drop where we said we were going to drop them. And uh, so they spotted that one went short and the one that went short actually landed pretty much on the trail, which is just incredible. And only about an hour down the hill from where we are now. And then the other three landed about another 20 minutes walk away. One of them, the one that hit the target, which was also the odd one out, all the loads were packed as evenly as possible. We could have probably got away with losing one of them. But the one thing we didn't have a backup of is the generator and the drill, because they're the only, we've only got one of each of those. And of course, that's the one that landed on target in a pond, fully submerged. Uh, anyway, they told us that we'd got the stuff. Then another, then the train, nice night down by Twin Drop Falls, beautiful place to camp under this incredible waterfall. Um, and then a hard day up from there. It's probably three hours of hard hiking, but with loads and breaks, it took a long time. There was a definite step change, hot, steep, 
the weather was still nice at that stage. We found uh, our stuff, they took us to our loads, everything was in order, the beepers were still going off, we didn't need to use the radio locators. Uh, we found the wet generator, and then we still had all the geysers at, the, at this stage, so there was 13 by now, um, no, sorry, 17, is that right? I think it's 15, because there was 21 total. We set off total. with nine originally, yeah. didn't we? No, we set off with nine from Philippa, we had, I know we had, we had six guys plus three, which was nine, and then Leo and Ron, so there was 11, yeah. and then four here. Yeah. So yeah, there was 15 of us, plus us six, so we were 21 people. Uh, which made pretty short work of moving up half a ton more. How much did we say there was? Yeah, nearly a ton of, uh, no, a thousand pounds, so half a ton of equipment with 21 people didn't take too long. So we got everything up here that day. The boys were hiking loads whilst we frantically built a base camp. They'd already put up a structure perfectly sized to our, uh, just a basic wooden frame for our tarps. They both sat on there perfectly. We tried messing around with the parachute over there. It didn't work. So we've got a really good mess area. The boys have built a good tech area as well, which is a big thing trying to stay on top of data storage and keeping lenses clean and batteries charged in this muddy, wet environment. We're shooting a lot, so we're using power and cranking through data. So that's a real bitch to stay on top of. Matt and Dan are doing a really good job of managing that. And then we've built the parachute gear camp and we got that ready just in time for the boys to start arriving because you need somewhere to put everything because when it rains it rains uh, and thankfully we didn't get complacent with the week of perfect weather we had and we got ready just in time because that night first night in base camp it hammered it down for the first time of the expedition and it didn't stop all night so we woke up in a bit of a mud fest uh, but it doesn't really affect things that much because you kind of get soaked walking through steep, slimy forests anyway. You sweat loads. So in, unlike, and because it's not that cold, although it's cooled down a lot, it does get chilly when the wind picks up. But basically, because it's not that cold, it doesn't matter being wet. And you can just kind of man up, gear up, and go out and carry on. So we released... Uh, how many of the buddy potters did we release? Ten. Ten. 11 and they'd run out of food so they've cleaned us out of quite a bit of food we gave them all a day pack of food which we've been on half rations on those since we arrived but some of them have got a six-day hike out of here so we couldn't not give them anything and i did bring a little bit extra so we sent all those guys off which in one way is, we really bonded with them we had a great time on the hiking watching them fish and poison the river and light fires and that make bow and arrows and the whole thing. It was it was exactly what I was hoping for. We, after an initially awkward vibe in the village, we kind of won their trust and respect and vice versa. And it was an amazing experience hiking in with those guys. It was kind of sad to see them go, but at the same time, everything revolves around food from here on in and more mouths to feed is less time. So it worked perfectly. They helped us hike all the stuff up from there. And then as I was hoping, uh, ten of them left and five of them have stayed. We kind of chose those five based on their attitudes and abilities. And although everyone was cool, some of them speak slightly better English and some of them were, you know, more able and willing to work. So we've got Edward, who's been with us from the start, who speaks really good English, who's been here twice before, who was one of the extra recruits that we got in Philippi. He positioned himself perfectly to get spotted. Uh, he's 56, so he's a good bit older than everybody else, um, but probably the fittest and nimblest of the bunch. He's, he's quite an impressive gentleman, really nice um, vibe. And then we've got Troy Henry, who we met at the river, who's been here the whole time, and he's just buzzing. The first thing he said to us, was, he's been in 23 days, and he had a grin from ear to ear. They, they, they love it out here. And, you know, Bear in mind the alternative he was telling us, they work on gold mines, and it's pretty medieval. They, uh, the Amerindian people here are really third-class citizens. They're treated very poorly by everybody. There's a weird political system here in Guyana where the Amerindians all live in the bush, basically, in the interior of the country. And the center of power is Georgetown, which is predominantly black, um, like Caribbean 
black and there's definitely a big divide and then there's another class which is from the Indian subcontinent this was all colonial stuff that the Brits did bringing people over from Africa bringing people over from India obviously the Amerindians have always been here but now the Indian class is pretty much the political class and the Amerindians are, are really somewhat exploited and obviously at one time this was all their land effectively is all their land so when you get these big Brazilian, American, Australian gold mining operations coming in, they pay someone in Georgetown for some paperwork and then come out with these devastating operations into places like this, not far from here. We saw a couple when we were flying in. And then they'll bring in a load of expats to do the skilled labor, but then it sounds like they're verging on slave labor camps where people like Troy work, I mean, it's not slave labor, they do get paid, but they're expected to fend for themselves in the forest and come and get kind of casual cash in hand work for sifting through shoveling shit. Um, whereas the other miners are in kind of luxury, well not luxury camps, but workers camps in the forest. So yeah, they're psyched to be here working for us, which is what I was hoping we'd find. Some, you never know with Porter, sometimes they do it reluctantly, sometimes they're not willing to work. These boys have been bang on. We had whistle commands. Whatever time I told them to be ready in the morning, they were ready to the second. We were usually late, but they were always ready. They all carried exactly what we asked of them. They said they'd carry 50 pounds. I watched them, I watched, I let them watch me pack them all 45 pound loads. So we're already like in their good books. Whenever they've asked for anything, any blisters or dry bags or extra bits and pieces of food or cigarettes, we've given it to them and that helps create a, a, a mutual respect and uh, so we had a really good time and then the five guys that have stayed there's a pretty clear within that that three of them are way better on steep terrain than the other two they, you couldn't have a more stark terrain change we walked to a river and it was like a pleasant trek along flat sunny jungle we went up a big hill got a sweat on for the first time, started to feel it. Then it started raining here in base camp and then from here, boom, you are in to the real meat, which is the approach to the wall, which is hard to describe, but essentially the prow of Orima is this giant overhanging ship that's about nearly 2,000 feet tall and looks like the front of the Titanic. And then below it, you've got a long, steep hill, which is kind of in three sections that goes for at least another two, two and a half thousand feet. Immediately where I'm sat, you step out of this parachute and you go into this much more three-dimensional vertical adventure playground of mud and roots and plants. And there's about five distinct ecosystems that you go through. First of all, there's about a 10 minute hike, um, a bit of boulder hopping, a bit of root hopping, a bit of mud squidging to get to the base of the ropes. And then boom, there's 600 feet of which what was first time up quite remarkable climbing. Waldo went up most of it first and it's vertical jungle. There's a step right at the start. You do a couple of boulder problems and then there's a 50 foot vertical jungle, wet, slimy, muddy corner, um, which has ancient ropes on it from the last trip that was here, which was probably 10 years ago, uh, which Waldo, bossed up with a static rope tied around his waist as if it was nothing. Gore-Tex on, hood up, gloves. Gloves are key. And then you just kind of swim up it. Um, and then that goes on for quite a long way. There was another tricky pitch with an old crappy ladder on it. And then there's been a big landslide which has taken out the previous route, probably caused sadly by the impact that just the, our footprints have on this terrain. Um, so we had to find a different way, which was Waldo's piece of resistance climbing up this wall of roots and moss that was just crumbling as he climbed up it. It was pretty impressive. And then tunneling through the undergrowth for about 100 feet up roots, like a giant climbing frame, basically. Absolutely amazing. And then through all those ropes, it kicks back a little bit. Waldo's just walking past me, doing bunny ears. There they go. Off to the showers. Have you got my dirty grots out? Are you going to wash them for me? All right, thank you. So at the top of the ropes, um, 
there begins the i guess it starts off as a moss forest and then quickly turns to a slime forest and it's really quite something these stubby trees covered in long moss like you would see in a in a fairy tale kind of witch's cottage um and then it quickly turns into just this unbelievable slime like something out of a kids tv show just clogged on everything these snotsicles these amazing slime they look like perfect transparent icicles but they're just snot <laughs> snotsicles and then uh you're also right on the ridge the continuation of the prow it's it's a real knife edge ridge you can't really sense it much because of all the vegetation but every now and again you realize that if you fall you know you're probably going to you're probably going to die there's a couple of sections where the ridge is probably only four feet wide there's one staircase of squedgy holes going up the ridge and either side is steep vegetation to precipitous cliff and that goes for quite a long way for you know at least at least 40 minutes like giving it some through this wild fairy tale terrain slime forest and there's another little cliff band which i led up which definitely requires a rope a bit more vertical jungle and then i went up this section first so the next section which it kicks back again before you get to this open area like a swamp which for some reason these boys refer to as a savannah which is more slime forest but that was great breaking trail through there there was no obvious trail and you're just jumping into these kind of beach ball size bromeliads that are full of water and these crazy little ones that look like trumpets that are also full of water and just an absolute maze of these stunted trees everywhere like a like a cargo net all minced up and uh you take out as little as you can to get through and then take out a bit more as you start coming through with loads but try to do as little as possible because it all kind of holds itself together that's where the potholes started absolute man traps from foot size to human size really just disappearing you could so easily break your leg especially with the load anyway we got through that to the to the bog and it really opens up on the shoulder and it's incredibly boggy. I was hoping we'd be able to have a camp there. There's a good helicopter landing zone and I was hoping we'd be able to have a nice camp there and it's out the question, it's just mud. It's awful, it's kind of a foot of mud. It was raining heavily when we went up there first time so there's no way that you'd get a nice camp there. Um, then the next time up, we carried on past that point back into another kind of forest which was even smaller trees, even more twisted and knotted, and even bigger bromeliads. Like, I don't know how, how you could describe them, like these enormous things that you could either tunnel under or climb on top of to forge a path. Edward was going first through that section, right up to a little notch below the wall. And we finally got there. It, it's a long way above here. It's a real mission to get there, especially on those first couple of laps when there's a trail knock was not good and it was a bit underwhelming getting to this it's the cool thing is it's right on the col underneath the wall there's maybe another 100 meters of bushwhacking to where the rock starts the bad thing is it's misty and cold and windy and wet and no decent flat ground it's we need another camp up there it's at least three hours of hard hiking four hours from here and it's not that sweet however yesterday we went up again in the meantime the boys had been ferrying loads up and we managed to make a half decent place. We managed to get the big tent pitched by chopping down some vegetation and packing up tent platforms and really doing quite a lot of work with bits of heathery stuff that's up there, bits of bamboo type stuff, and trying to like make a lattice that gets it out of the mud and levels off this area. It worked pretty well. Then we put another one of the parachutes up in this other slightly flat area, which didn't work that well. There's no straight trees up there. So I think we can improve that a bit. So we've got a gear area, one t big tent. I think we can get another little tent up there, but basically it's a crappy camp. It's gonna be hideous in bad weather. The nice thing here is even though we've had some monster days, you get back to somewhere where you can, as soon as you get back, you can pretty much get dry, get changed, get warm um, and, and switch out of that battle mode into camp mode, which is really pleasant. And we kind of need that ability to do that. If you get back from a day on the wall and you're absolutely so, to get back to a hovel where there's nowhere out the wind and 
rain except a tent which is immediately going to get full of mud when you get in it is going to be grim um but getting up there was no mean feat basically all of our porters maybe three of them edward troy and schneider are pretty good on the steep terrain but the 600 feet of fixed rope about half of which is kind of vertical cliff in sections above here so they they can get up it with a combination of the harnesses and jumas we've given them and their incredible strength and fitness hand over hand and it up ropes particularly those three guys edward who's 56 schneider and troy they are way better at moving over that kind of terrain than we are. i couldn't keep up with edward coming down yesterday Waldo Wilson and I were really quick skipping through any sort of technical terrain and I could not keep up with him and he wasn't stumbling or incredible real at one with it and on the steep terrain as well they climbing on the vegetation they don't seem to disturb it in the same way as we do and they don't get covered in mud barefoot they take the shoes off when it gets really technical and kind of claw into the mud with the toes however they didn't like doing it with heavy loads um, whereas we're using Jumars and harnesses and foot loops to Jumars. So largely Waldo and Wilson, with a little bit of help from the rest of us, pretty much bossed everything up from here at base camp to the top of the wall, where the top of the ropes, where it gets easier terrain again. And we did a really good job of shifting large amounts of stuff up there, just grunting big haul bags, because it's only like an hour really. So just manning up and doing that as fast as we could. And then our Amerindian friends have been ferrying. They've been going up with no loads and up the ropes and then ferrying on the less technical terrain, which is far, which really works because it, it plays to their skill set and against ours. And then right now they've gone up to move the last of the loads from the swamp to our advanced base camp, which is fantastic news. Basically, well, everything is going according to plan on schedule. The only factor which we don't have control over the weather is not really in our favor although it's not raining right now but we can't do anything about that tonight we're going to have our last meal as a 10 or 11 and then three of the guys snyder alex and clem are going to take off back to philippi which is a six-day trek we're going to take some more of the food and that's going to leave the six of us and edward and troy who want to come with us up the wall which is exactly what I was hoping. I didn't want to force anyone. I didn't want to pay anyone to, to come climbing with us, but I was hoping that there might be, amongst all the, the people that we meet, someone who was actually genuinely psyched to, to come with us on the wall, and there is. Um, the five of them were psyched to come and get up there and get stuck in and see it. And then two of the guys, Edward, our old friend from day one, and Troy, who's been in here from the beginning, are both properly motivated to be the first Amerindians who've had the opportunity to climb the wall. Edward in particular, because he's been here twice before with uh, an American guy that I know quite well, Mark Sinnott, um, who was the first person to come here after the 73 expedition. He did two trips in the early part of the millennium and Edward was on both of them. So Edward's been up to the base of this wall more than almost anyone on three separate expeditions. He wasn't in the original uh, Porter group we were given because he was away when they did the selection and he uh he immediately kind of made himself known and straight away i was like i invited him because i knew that there was no one else there who'd been up here before he speaks good english and it's really been a godsend and i think he's realized that he had the opportunity to come here twice earlier in his life and he's never been back and he wants to climb it now he's getting older he's 56 he realizes there's not going to be another chance to do this he trusts us he's already getting his head around the kit he can put his harness on by himself they're, they're fast learners and he wants to seize the opportunity as soon as he even caught a whiff of the opportunity he uh he's been putting himself in position he's been working really hard the whole time to try and win our respects and prove himself which he has done and then troy who was already in here when we walked in immediately upon bumping onto me just buzzes energy he speaks pretty good english he's hard to understand to start with but um he does speak good english in a very caribbean rasta fashion and he's really motivated again he works in gold mines being slaved half his life he's psyched out of his mind to be working here and then the opportunity of the genuine adventure of going up there i think he likes the idea of being the first amerindian to get up there he said he couldn't sleep 
the night we arrived because he was so excited about the prospect of the next adventure. They're into it. You can. They're into the. We're having a good laugh with these guys. They trust us and get that we're not here hunting for diamonds or gold or oil. Um, and I think that was probably what the weird vibe was to start with. They have every reason to be suspicious of us. And in conclusion, the interaction we've had with these Amerindian guys could not have been more positive. They've worked really hard with heavy loads. They've done exactly what we asked them for exactly the amount we agreed to pay them. It's been fantastic. I've had some bad experiences with porters before, and these guys are as, as good as they get, like Nepalese style. And given your experience of porters in the past and how much work it adds, why? Because before we left the UK, you decided that you were interested in bringing people at the wall. Why did you want to bring two Amerindians up with you? I've done a previous trip to Guyana and I found the interaction with the local Amerindian community really fascinating. Um, obviously, they live in this environment. They live out in the rainforest. They survive. They raise children. They give birth. They, they spend their entire lives out here. So they are so in tune with everything. But also a really critical part of it is they speak English. Guyana is the only English-speaking country in South America. They speak English like Bob Marley with this Caribbean pigeon twang. And out here, actually, not many of them speak that good of English. The previous community I was in was a bit different. But that gives you access to the culture in a way that unless you speak fluent Spanish or a native language, you're never going to make friends with them in the same way. Um, and because of that, and because I know that they're pretty cool, basically, once they realize that you, you're not here to rip them off, they're really solid people and they're so skilled. You know, they're all farmers. They can all make, they're all cabinet makers. They're all such multi skilled knowledgeable people like edward's classic he's like the he knows so much about so many things and uh and i knew it'd be a pleasure hanging out with these guys what i didn't want to do is come in with 60 porters to bring all the stuff because you know it's bad enough traveling as a, a group of of 10 Ugh, it would have been miserable and it's kind of hassly you know there's internal politics they they get injured they need food you never quite know what's going on some of them are on the make you don't know whether or not you can leave your stuff lying around on this occasion, we absolutely could. Everyone was, was really great. But I thought it'd be super cool that, you know, we would have never got here. Maybe, I think even if it had just been Waldo, Wilson and I, without line cutters and guides, it would have taken weeks. I don't think we could have done it. We needed their help to cut the trail uh, up to the base, up to here to base camp and to help us move all the stuff. And I thought it'd be really cool given the experience and equipment that we have on our team if you've got someone with the right kind of attitude and the right kind of physical attributes you can train them up in no time how to climb ropes and abseil and lower out which are the three skills you need if you're with someone who knows what they're doing to climb a big wall and i thought that'd be a really cool cultural exchange you know we can't climb the wall without their help they certainly can't climb Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The wall without our help. So I thought it would be a very sort of progressive move and all the stuff that we've learned from them moving through the forest, all the tricks they've showed us, we can kind of return the favor. And it's worked perfectly. Basically, none of the other guys were psyched. There's two people who are psyched out of their minds. I told them last night and they, they started buzzing. I'd kind of already decided in my head, but I hadn't said anything to them. And they, they were both really pleased. And the other three, Snyder's a good, it's a shame we're gonna lose Snyder. He's a, he's a good guy to have around. Um, it was his family's lot that we passed through. And his wife's bloody pregnant. So he just asked me last night if we can arrange on the helicopter that you guys are taking out of here 
a transfer for his wife to Georgetown for him and his wife so that she can give birth, which obviously we'll try to do because um, there's probably a plane coming as well, which is great to be able to help them in that way. But it's a bit of a bombshell on an already complicated uh, airlift, but we'll help him. So I was going to ask you this later, but you've sort of led me into it well. How do you go about planning something like this? The planning for this expedition was quite intense. It's quite a multifaceted, complex project. Not least of all because at the end of this mission, Waldo Wilson and I have got another mission, um, a client trip directly off the back of it. Here in Guyana, it's basically one continuous trip. So it's been a bit of a head fry for me, but essentially, you know, it's hypothetical. You have to try and think through based on your own experience and other people's everything that could possibly happen, the order it's going to happen, how long it's going to take and make sure you've got everything that you need in terms of equipment and supplies and skills and knowledge to deal with all those things that you thought of and be ready for a couple that you hadn't thought of. And you just have to try and break it down and think it through logically. Waldo's been a great help because he knows the jungle well. He's got just enough wall experience and spend time with me to understand the processes. Uh, so we've been conferring a lot. And a lot of it is literally just like pub conversation with a few physical and mental notes until some point when you when you get some money and you, you, you commit, you know, you, you have to pitch these ideas. It costs a lot of money. And then when you finally got some money, well, actually, usually before, I, end, I started spending money in about June, and I always hold off as long as possible until you're pretty sure it's going to happen. And then in, I knew I was away for the whole summer on a family holiday, and I know how long it takes to get this stuff together. So at the start of June, I was like, right, this isn't going to happen unless I start putting the orders in for the specialist rain flies for the portal edges, which are going to take three months, and this food from this supplier that takes ages, and this, that, and the other. Uh, and I put wheels in motion in June and it took most of the summer to get it all together and then as you'll remember we had a giant faff at my climbing wall where basically I figured every, almost everything we needed was there but a lot of it was still in boxes and all packaged and then you just have to try and organize it as well as you possibly can and you have to keep telling yourself the more anal I am with the organization now the less I'm going to have to do it later and that is also all digital so there's a spreadsheet with every piece of equipment everyone's name size weight i mean all this clothing everything that everyone's got here every single item that everyone's got except a few of the cameras is was specced out you know the, the size the color of the clothing the footwear the socks the hammocks the climbing gear the harnesses the helmets all the food the 350 man days of food all weighed out to 10 gram bags of fruit and nut. There's so much stuff. Uh, and there's, there's a couple of errors. There's no bloody tea bags. I don't know what happened. We were packing basically three separate things, this huge scene, and somehow we've ended up with no tea bags. And then there's two cups that which should have gone up there, which are down here. But to be honest, given the scale of the task, we are so on top of the game right now. It looked a bit worrying with food for a while because we, we've fed the porters so much just one meal with 15 porters that's two full days of our supplies and we fed them like four times so that's wiped out quite a lot of our food but we have just enough surplus to cover it so we're looking good just the we didn't have a backup generator you know they, you should have 100 percent redundancy in all your critical systems so if something fails that you can't complete the mission without you've got two and we have on most things but our backup system for the generator is a solar setup which we tested in perfect conditions the other day and it didn't work basically i mean it did work but it just charged things so slowly there's no way we'd be able to run this show off solar so there was a tense moment when i realized that the generator wasn't working and basically that would have been the end of the film we could have still finished the climb but anyway troy got it working and uh and that was the closest panic we've had. So yeah, basically we're bang on schedule, bang on plan. 
everything's worked perfectly. The airdrop worked perfectly. We dropped half a ton of stuff an hour away from base camp. We had guys to help it get up here. We had guys to help get it up there. That's being completed as we speak. So tomorrow we launch to an advanced, a fully stocked advanced base camp um, with more than two weeks, you know, probably 16 days worth of supplies. We might come back down here once if it gets insufferable up there. But with a bit of luck, about 20 minutes above our advanced base camp, one more bushwhack up to the wall proper. And in Hamish McInnes' book, there's talk of a little bivy cave right where you start rope climbing. And that might be our savior. <laughs> and then we're in, we can just pray for the weather. I think we're gonna attempt a strikingly bold and difficult looking line straight up the prow for various reasons. There's already four routes on this part of the wall. You can see where they all go. They all look really hard. And any remaining unclimbed lines look even harder. But the big advantage to this thing we're looking at is it's so steep, it looks quite dry. Even yesterday when we had a torrential downpour, the main prow is fairly dry. Um, also, the other wall to the left where we were thinking most of it turns into a waterfall in heavy rain. There's very few places that you wouldn't get pounded by water and it's not as steep so the, the rock gets more wet. And logistically it's easier climbing on the prow because it's kind of right there above camp um, for getting up and down. The catch is it looks absolutely nails. <laughs> it looks like a really, really hard route. I'm sorry to say we're almost certainly going to have to drill on some sections. There's a couple of areas of rock where the horizontal breaks which appear in most places run out. Uh, you never know until you get up close and personal. We might find something. But there's a couple of big traverses um, and it's incredibly steep. So we just need to hope for micro features for holds that are hidden that you can't see from afar. And to backtrack slightly before we go into the wall stuff in more detail, given the inevitable war of attrition, that is expedition life. How important is a solid base camp? A solid base camp is really helpful on a trip because <clears throat> we're here for a long time. We're here for more than four weeks and it wears you down. Having a base camp that we, which is comfortable enough to actually recover in rather than just existing is quite important. We've got that here at base camp just it's not exactly deluxe, you know, stepping into a, a bog to get from your bed to where you can have a cup of coffee, but it's manageable even in bad conditions. A advanced base camp, I'm not sure, is going to be quite good enough. We shall hopefully be able to exist without deteriorating, but it's not going to be a good place for recovery. Thankfully, we have done a pretty good job of staying in good shape, considering how long we've been in the brush. Um, the first week was really mellow it couldn't have been easier which was fantastic we were finishing early and we all had a chance to get used to stuff it's still tiring it does add up the last few days have been really tiring on top of that so we've decided to have a rest today i reckon people are showing the strain a bit more than they might be letting on all of us um so but we haven't had a day off i mean what is this day 10 Something like I think that. it's more. Day 12. Yeah. And we've been constantly on the go. And it's a week-long trek just to get to here. That's a big kind of obstacle just to get the ball rolling. So you're already in super deep before you start. I mean, it's fucking ludicrous what we're doing, man. Because we're just in the loads. I carried a full grade six haul bag. That's 160 litres of freeze-dried food up the ropes the other day. And that is torture. You know, it's a bag like five foot high and two foot round, sticking it way above your head, trying to get through those tunnels in on muddy Jumars. Jumars just absolutely caked in mud, going up a waterfall. I had a panic at one stage and I had to get it off my back and start hanging it. And then you're just dragging this thing through vertical undergrowth with bromeliads and spiders running around. It's, it's like a joke. It's such hard work. Uh, sometimes you have to do I do I call them futility checks it's like how futile is this well absolutely futile we're here 
to move all this stuff around to get to the top of this thing to then bring it all down and go back again definitely futile but every now and again you you know you just wonder when you've got such a heavy load and the conditions are so bad like is this just futile should we just put this down go and have a rest wait for the rain to stop and try again no no we shouldn't do that we should just carry on because then this bag will be up this hill and when the rain stops we can come back up and go climbing no nope, not futile building the tent platforms up there you know some of the guys took one look at it and were like, well, we can't camp here. And I was like, well, I think with a bit of effort, I've done this before, where it's surprising what you can do with limited resources and a bit of time. And then halfway through, it still wasn't looking that good. And <laughs> we'd been working on it for an hour and I thought, oh God, is this completely futile? But then another hour and I thought, actually, we, this might work. And you never know because a lot of the tent platform is kind of extremely hollow and it tends to rot out. But right now we've got an enormous... Hilleberg four-man dome tent pitched somewhere where there was no obvious place to pitch a tent, which might be our saviour. All six of us can squeeze in there if we can keep the mud out. Four of us can sleep in there. Might end up being a tech tent. Yeah, so den building and adventure salt course 101. Big boys and girls adventure. <laughs> so, yeah, which... Just like playing out with the kids times a lot. <laughs> Yeah, forgive the obvious stupid question, but why do it? Why do it? It's good fun. It's the right mission. Even questing around in the rain up there, it is, it's playful. It's, it is kind of like a, a more purposeful version of going out and stomping around in streams and balancing across logs with the kids. Uh, the heavy loads are the only thing that you do question why you're doing it. But it's fun being out here. It's a beautiful place. Very few people ever get to come into an environment like this, particularly a tropical rainforest so remote and untouched there's not that much of the planet left like this anymore and it's you know this is the key this is the rainforest that we all need to try and protect these last bits of pristine forest our impact here is limited when we go in a year or two there'll be no sign of our presence um, and just being on such a simple if difficult mission with such a defined purpose to come and work as a team to overcome all the obstacles you face in your path to reach the summit and once you've committed to that plan, actually our plan is to do that and shoot it, which is no mean feat. And that is part of the plan all the way along. Um, from how much kit we've got to everything is revolving around climbing the mountain and shooting it. Um, and then life becomes a series of challenges to achieve that goal. We're only here for a little bit over a month. And for that month in the jungle, Life is hard, but clear. We've got to try and get up there without killing ourselves or getting bitten by snakes and enjoy the experience of these crazy assault courses in this pristine rainforest where only a handful of people have ever seen watching the sunrise over an imaginary landscape that is the kind of inspiration to fairy tales and movies. It's a real place, Mount Roraima, the Tapiri land these incredible tabletop mountains that stick up out of endless jungle this is a real place and we are equipped and able to survive here and go climbing on some massive overhanging quartzite cliff for the next couple of weeks that's cool that we're in this position it's not an easy position to get into we nailed it we airdropped all our stuff in got some boys to help us and we're nearly ready to start climbing and i'm in pretty good shape yeah, it is very, very cool. Um, we killed it. Does it, obviously the the line is so blurry it might have disappeared, but does it ever feel like work? Uh, it definitely feels like work carrying heavy bags up, up big hills. The loads definitely feel like work. Um, but when you haven't got a heavy load and you're skipping around, breaking trail up these epic bromeliads, it feels like the stuff of, of legend that you dream of doing when you were a kid, Indiana Jones stuff, which it is. So, and then there's the whole logistics and management and money side to it. So yeah, there is an element of this, which is definitely for me in a way that it isn't for the other guys. I mean, there's a lot of money moving around in these helicopters and porters and equipment and budgets to manage and helicopter logistics to manage and portage wages and film deliverables and there is a lot going on but 
that is less so now. Loads of that was before. It's definitely felt like work for three months prior to leaving. Here, you can't call it work. It's, it's hard work, but it's the most wonderful playtime ever. Don't tell Jess I said that. I always tell her it's work. I'm going away for leaving the family for five weeks. Of, I'm a professional climber, it's my job. When you're lying in your hammock at night, do you think about home much or do you try not to? Hammock is a little bastion of bug-free, dry peace and comfort. They're wonderful little spots. Uh, to be honest, I, for the first kind of week, I felt like I had too much going on constantly. Uh, they're always there, wife and kids, in the back of my mind, but I haven't been corresponding with that much, a couple of check-ins, just because I think out of sight, out of mind is better, certainly with Freya, and she gets, if I speak to her on the phone, especially on a sat phone where it's a rubbish link, it brings me back into the forefront of her mind and she finds it difficult, which makes it difficult for Jess. So we found the best way is minimal communication, basically. And also on this trip, I've had a lot on my plate all the time. The last couple of days, we've had a bit more, uh, we've been going to bed so early that from seven o'clock till seven till six o'clock in the hammock. So I have been thinking about it a bit, but I try not to because I'm only two weeks into a long trip. Um, so it gets you down if you think too much about what you're missing out on. And basically I was around all summer. We had a great trip away in the summer. I'm going to be around when we get back. So focus on the present. There's no point in worrying about the what's not happening. There's plenty going on here. When the weather gets bad, and you're stuck and you can't do anything, which we haven't experienced yet, but your motivation lulls in the bad weather when you're tired. And if you start indulging too much in thoughts of home and warm fires, hot baths and family life, that's not going to help you get to the top of this big, scary mountain. <laughs> no. And do you find it easy to explain to Freya and Jackson what you do? Uh, yes and no. They've kind of got used to it now and they know that daddy is a, climber and a adventure explorer and we do quite a lot of stuff with the kids as well more than you, most people would do with kids of that age so they are they're into it they think it's cool and I asked Freya when I was on the school run is it cool having a daddy who goes away on big adventures or is it bad having a daddy who goes away on big adventures and she straight away she's like it's really cool I just wish he didn't have to go away for as long <laughs> she it's pretty cool having a dad who's a jungle explorer the problem is it means he goes away a lot i'll just have to make sure i'm around a bunch in the rest of the winter and the spring I'm going on a bloody ski trip the day i get back literally the day i get back from this trip i land in the airport in the morning and then drive onto the tunnel in the evening to go to the alps for 10 days with the kids it could be worse yeah it could, it could um, be a lot worse how do you justify the risk Tricky question. How do you justify the risk? Um, I think by limiting it as best as possible. I mean, it's foolish to say that <clears throat> there's a lot of risk out here, but that's what makes it so exciting. And I think you just have to limit the risk as much as possible. The more inherently dangerous something is, the more careful and cautious you have to be when you're doing it to do it with an acceptable degree of safety. Um, we all have different risk tolerances. Many people would probably quite correctly say that this is way too dangerous a thing to be doing um, when you've got dependence. But I would say basically this is what I do. It's what I've always done. I'm pretty good at it. Um, there are, it is possible that something bad could happen. We've got pretty good systems in place to deal with anything, should it. Um, and yeah, you just caution all the time, every time, every day, whatever you're doing. And out here, you really have to be careful. I nearly cut my finger folding a penknife away earlier. Um, you've, you've got to like increase your level of alertness and concentration, um, particularly when you're on the ropes. Where, But in a way, it's almost safer in the really high-risk environments because you're so much more on it. There are hazards. I would say the thing I'm probably most worried about out here is someone falling and breaking the leg with a heavy load on this bad terrain. It's just all these potholes and spikes everywhere. It's very possible you could have a walking injury. 
and then loose blocks on the wall. Someone getting hit by somebody else dropping loose blocks. That's by far the most dangerous thing. And then when you're on lead, it's just down to good judgment and knowing what kind of physical shape you're in, knowing how far to push it. And it looks like the line that we're attempting is going to require bolts. Um, I can't, we might, but in a way that makes it less risky. If you find a line that you think could go purely on natural protection, which I always do, then that increases the risk in one way. But if you accept that there's going to be sections that will not go without bolts, you're going to need to place some bolts. So yeah, um, just be careful. Uh, my wife, Jessica, of 12, 13 years, understands that, the kids understand it, and I just try to be careful, basically. And can you talk about the plane ticket and how that changed your perception of... Um, when Freya was born, she's just turned six in the summer, so that was 2013, I went to Antarctica for the first time um, at the start of that year, and we climbed the northeast ridge of Bulvatana, which is an amazing line, the finest line I've ever climbed, I reckon. Mile high, hard ridge out in Antarctica. Uh, with Stanley and Jace and Al and Chris Raybone and Big Dave. And then six months after that, Freya was born, and Stanley's wife, was Mika, was heavily pregnant. And then five months after that, Stanley crashed his wingsuit into a cliff in Zion and died instantly, although no one knew for nearly a week. Um, and he left his wife seven months pregnant um, and widowed. And it hit me really hard. I spoke to Stanley about two weeks before his accident and uh, he was really freaking out about becoming a dad and the loss of freedoms and the all the other stuff, which I had been freaking out about two, six months earlier, but then immediately upon meeting your own offspring, your attitude changes a lot, particularly as a father, because there's so little physical connection prior to that. I'll never forget Freya sleeping on my bare chest the first night she was born, um, this tiny little thing, and it's a really special, magical feeling. And I remember describing that to Stanley, who was still freaking out, and then boom, he disappeared. Um, I went to his funeral and uh, just seeing his wife's face heavily pregnant with this kind of, she was thrilled to be pregnant, she's an older mum, but then this terrible grief, it was really horrible. And it made me question, not just base jumping, but um, risk and children. Uh, and, you know, I used to consider base jumping in a similar category to any other high risk pursuit it's a high-risk pursuit that you have to do carefully um, but it was so in your face having this little baby daughter and then seeing one of my best friends die and never meeting his own son it's all a kind of hideous timing uh, so I thought well I'm definitely not going to do any more base jumping for a while and how do I feel about dangerous trips is it justifiable um, and then about six months after Actually, no, about two months after Stanley died, I got a job for Discovery TV doing what I would call adventure -y stuff. It's this kind of thing, but it's kind of pretending to do this kind of thing. You know, you might do it for a few days um, out in the jungle and do some really cool stuff. Wrestling, caiman, tagging, giant black caiman not far from here, um, climbing up waterfalls. But it's on a different scale to this kind of expedition. This is what I would call real adventure. That's kind of the TV end of the spectrum. So it's, it's, it's a lot safer and it's done for telly. It's not done just for the sake of it. But it's still pretty adventurous by most people's standards. <laughs> you know, we were going out into the middle of nowhere in the jungle, climbing on climb cliffs, fording rivers, going down into caves and waterfalls. It is adventurous stuff. Um, but I felt, A, I was getting paid good money for it and B, it didn't feel in the same class as these kind of expeditions. So I, I, I went on one of those trips. It was the first time I'd been away for a period of time since Ferry was born. That was hard. Um, but the trip was successful. We made a good film. It wasn't too painful, but I was still wondered about hardcore stuff. And then did another trip for that TV show about six months after Stanley died. 
and we went to Borneo to film in the incredible caves of the Mulu region of this incredible jungle in Borneo. And this was in the summer of 2014. And the abbreviated version of this story is that I ended up going out a few days ahead of schedule. I had a, a disagreement with the production team about how long it was going to take to climb this cliff. They'd only given me two days in the schedule. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll go out unpaid five days early with a couple of guys and we'll establish the climb off camera so that when we come back to film it, we can just use those two days for filming. Uh, and I didn't get paid for that. And so in the end, I got them to agree to that. They paid the other guys, but not me. And they changed the flights and I flew out five days ahead of schedule. What that meant was a profound impact on the course of my life because I was due to fly out before the change of schedule on the 14th of July, 2014, the 16th of July, 2014, from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur on the flight MH17, which is the one that got shot down by um, Russian separatists in Ukraine. I have still got the email. I had a seat booked on that plane. And the only reason that I'm still here is because of a change of schedule at my initiation a week earlier. Uh, so we were up on this cliff in the jungle when that happened, came out the forest five days later, met the rest of the production team who'd all flown from London to Kuala Lumpur on the same day. And actually, they didn't quite see it like this, but they were as lucky as I was because that plane went through the same airspace a few hours before the one from Amsterdam went through that same airspace and got shot down by a altitude Cold War era missile but I actually had a seat on that plane and that really changed my opinion a bit because it spun me out a lot it was literally the getting hit by a, a bus imagine if I decided never to go base jumping again never to climb any more mountains to quell my own passion because I need to be there to look after my kill my kids like everybody says you should and then you go on holiday to the Bahamas and you get shot down you got you got you're on your way to the Maldives and you get shot down by a rocket and die anyway which is what nearly happened um, and I thought screw that you know you might get shot down by a rocket whatever life you live in so you might as well try to fulfill your ambitions and your dreams um, and live life with passion and if you find something that you're passionate about and you have the opportunity to pursue that passion I think you should and I think as a parent what I would want for my children more than anything is to find something that they're passionate about and have the opportunity to pursue it uh, to, the, to the fullest. And, you know, I like to think daddy's leading by example. It's easy to tell someone to try hard and be passionate. It's a hard balance to get, don't get me wrong, and I couldn't do it without Jess's support. Being away for six weeks from a young family is more work for her than it is for me. It's a and they are a part of this trip as well, being an absent father and leaving Jess in the lurch with all the single parenting duties. But it's only six weeks. For the next six months, I'll, I'll be around. I'm not working nine to five. I'm not commuting for an hour each way. I spend every weekend with the kids going out doing adventurous stuff. So I think we've got a good balance at the moment. We've just got to make sure that we make the most of our time out here, relish every moment, don't spend the whole time missing family life make the most of it whilst you're here make the most of family life whilst you're there and be very careful make sure nothing bad happens to me or anybody else and if it does deal with it as well as we can and accept that you know we're playing a dangerous game as safely as we can ace yeah and so speaking of passions and ambitions what's the plan from here on out the rest of the trip well, today we're having a day off. The sun has just this moment come out. Spirits are soaring. We're going to wash our mud-clad pants and t-shirts. Um, we're going to eat and drink full rations. And then tomorrow, we are going to pack up all our personal stuff. One of those tarps and a couple of bags of tech. We're going to do one more load up the ropes through the slime forest, across the swamp, through the bromeliad woods, to our ghetto camp, advanced base camp. 
And then we're going to spend at least a week, possibly two, up there with the intention of starting rock climbing maybe the day after tomorrow. The lower part looks easy enough. The first 500 feet don't look too challenging. Then there's a big step change and it basically looks hard for the next 1500 feet. That'll be pitch a day type territory maybe too. So we should have two weeks worth of supplies up there when we start climbing. Pray for some nice weather. If it's shit, we'll just have to deal and hope we stay dry on the wall. And that's the best we can do. We've got food. We're at helicopters coming on the 5th of December. That's two weeks away. So get up there, try and pimp that camp, find this cave, start climbing the day after tomorrow. Free the wall, bring up two people. No, one person who's never climbed, no, three people who've never climbed a wall, two people who've never due mod, eight people on the wall, <laughs> no water supply at the base, week long approach to a week long hill with three quarters of a ton of equipment. What could possibly go wrong? Simple, so simple. Eight people, three novices, on a giant rainy wall in the middle of nowhere. Whose idea was that? <laughs> oh, and did I tell you about the princesses at the end? <laughs> no, I didn't, did you? Oh, I'll tell you another time. Right, leave it there. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. And to keep up to speed with the expedition, follow Leo Holding and Berghaus on Instagram.